You're listening to the Scottsdale Podcast, which features our Sunday sermons. If you would like to learn more about what God is doing in the life of Scottsdale Baptist Church, visit our website at scottsdale.org. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, and again, welcome to Scottsdale. So glad all of you are here. For those of you who may be first or second time guests, my name is Phil Ortigo. I serve as a senior pastor here at Scotts Hill. Uh, we've done things a little bit differently today in light of what happened last Tuesday. Our music that we had originally chosen was very upbeat, very um, um, celebratory. And in the midst of what took place, we did not want to be tone deaf to what has been happening in our culture. Today is Memorial Day celebration. We begin today. It's happening all this weekend. Tomorrow is Memorial Day. Now, Memorial Day has traditionally been set aside for those individuals who have paid the ultimate sacrifice by a willful choice on their part to give up their lives on behalf of other people. And usually when we talk about Memorial Day, we usually speak of it in terms of the military. Those individuals who have paid the ultimate sacrifice. And we have seen that and we certainly want to honor those today. Because there are countless men and women through the ages who have given their lives to secure the freedom that you and I enjoy today. And we're grateful for that. But it also extends beyond that. It extends also to Um, law enforcement officers, police, state troopers, sheriff's deputies, those who lay their lives on the line every single day, and many of them have paid the ultimate sacrifice for the safety of our own culture. And then we also see first responders such as um, firemen and those who rush into burning buildings, and many of them have given their lives. Doctors and nurses in this last year, in two years, where we've seen them put themselves on the front lines of danger. And not even to mention all the other medical um, experts who have given of themselves and even civilians, citizens in our culture who have given their own lives for the sake of others. And we look at them and we say, these are heroes. These are men and women who have been brave and paid the ultimate sacrifice for our well-being. And we give thanks to that. And we're grateful for that. But we can never forget the one who paid the ultimate sacrifice for all of humanity. And that is the Lord Jesus himself, who willfully gave himself in our place instead of us and for us on the cross. And because of that, we can experience salvation and redemption. But this Memorial Day is going to be different in the minds of a lot of people, especially for those who are in Uvalde, Texas, those who are going to be having memorial services for children, for grandchildren, for brothers or for sisters or for cousins or for classmates or for friends and neighbors, we're going to see that community come together in a time like this. And our hearts are outraged by what took place. There should be a righteous indignation within every one of us because of what took place this past week when a coward walked into a building and unconsciously, unconscionably killed 19 children. And we grieve over that. And for the next couple of weeks, what you may see on the news is you're going to see pictures of those children with names attached to them. The thing that most grieved me and just really caught me off guard is when I heard the report that they had to special order 19 small caskets for children. That should never happen in America. 
It shouldn't happen in our country. It shouldn't happen in our culture. It shouldn't happen in our schools. And we're grieved by that, and rightly so. But what about the millions of children who have died that we will never know their names? Who have died and will never see their faces? Who have died and will never be placed in a coffin, but instead a garbage can? And what about all of those millions of children that will never have the opportunity to breathe or to feel the loving touch of another human? They'll never scan the sky for a high-flying kite. For when still blind, destroyed were they in the black womb of night. They'll never stand upon a hill, springs wind in their hair. Aborted winds of thought closed in on motherhood's despair. They'll never walk the shores of life or know the tides of time, for their coming was but unloved, and that their only crime. Nameless are they, a grain of sand, one of the countless dead. But the deed that made them ashen gray floats on sea of red. While we should be righteously indignant at the death of 19 little children who go to class, should we not also be righteously indignant about the millions of children who were aborted and have never been given the opportunity for life? It is one thing for us to be outraged by these 19 children who have names and faces and toys and brothers and sisters, but what about those others? How many? Let me put this in perspective for you. According to the National Right to Life statistics, the number of children that are aborted in America since Roe v. Wade 49 years ago have been 63,500,000 children have been aborted. What does that mean by month or year? 1,295,918 children are aborted every year in America. 107,993 children aborted per month. 25,000 children aborted every week. 3,560 children aborted every Day. That's more than the number of people that were killed in 9-11. Can you imagine a 9-11 happening every single day of the year? 148 children aborted per hour. 2.5 children aborted every minute of every day in the United States. What's it look like in North Carolina? North Carolina has one of the most liberal abortion states in the United States. 30,004 children aborted in 2020. 2,500 children aborted every month in North Carolina. 5,577 children aborted every week. 83 children aborted every day. 3.5 children aborted per hour. Do you know that in North Carolina, in Mecklenburg County, which is Charlotte and Raleigh-Durham, those two areas, more children are aborted than are born alive in the state of North Carolina? Now, as we look at these things, I got good news and bad news. The good news is this. The good news is there is a rise happening in our culture against abortion. 
In the state of North Carolina today, the residents, 50%, say they are pro-life, or only 40% are pro-abortion. And we're seeing that trend go up in the United States as well. So that's good news. We're seeing a decline in the support of abortions, but we're seeing an increase in the support of pro-life. Now, that's the good news. Here's the bad news. The bad news is because of the ruling that has come down, the opinion from the Supreme Court, there is going to be a growing hostility towards pro-life. It's going to be happening in our culture. It's going to be happening in our cities. And it may even happen in our own communities, and particularly whenever I bring messages such as this. That's the bad news. And the bad news is we're going to see a rise in that hostility towards these positions. Now, let me tell you why I'm speaking on this today. Last week, I said that I would speak on this. This was before the events of Uvalde. We knew nothing of that. And I want to be sensitive to that issue and the loss of life there. But I also want to speak to us today because as a shepherd, as a body, as a, as a pastor of this church, I feel that I need to speak on behalf of the things that are happening in our culture to help us to understand clearly where we should be as a body of Christ. Let me tell you what this message is not about, okay? Listen carefully. It is not about politics. Put your politics away today. It's not about Republican or Democrat. It's not about any of those things. We're not going to delve into the politics, although politics does create policy that can be harmful. So we're not dealing with politics today. We're not dealing with ideologies today, okay? And so this message isn't about that. This message is not about a condemning tone in our culture because there are many women in this body today and we'll be in the next service, and some who are watching online who have gone through abortion. And they are still suffering the ramifications and the consequences of that. And those women who have gone through abortion need to understand the grace of the Lord Jesus and the forgiveness that is found in him and the freedom that can be found in a relationship with Christ. And there are many women in this church who are now walking in freedom because of decisions of the past. And God has set them free and is even using them in this whole debate today. So this is not going to be a condemning message. Here's what I want to do today. I want to inform us as a body. I want to speak to a very difficult issue. I spoke to a pastor of a mega church and I asked him, I said, can you please tell me how do you address the issues of sexuality into your congregation? How do you address the issues of abortion? How do you address all the culture wars? He says, if you want to be a mega church, you don't talk about it. Well, I don't care about being a mega church, but I do care about being a faithful pastor. And here's what I want to share with you today. We want to look at what Scripture says about the sanctity of human life. So we're going to begin with the Word of God. Secondly, we want to look at what science says about human life. Everybody's talking about following the science today, but there's a pseudoscience that's created for a specific narrative, and we're talking about science. The third thing I want to talk about is the social impact that abortion can have on our communities. And the fourth thing I want to talk about is what is our stand? Where should we stand as a body of Christ? Where should we stand as believers 
Where should we stand as compassionate followers of Christ in the midst of this culture war? This is what I'm going to talk about today. And so we're going to flow through these things pretty quickly. And I want to give you a challenge at the end for all of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, that your word is true regardless of the winds of cultural norms. We thank you, Father, that we can rest in the absolute truth of what you say. Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today. Guide me as I, with great sensitivity and yet, Father, with boldness, speak on these issues. And Father, the issue today is that you would be glorified and that our lives would be transformed by the speaking of your word. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Here we go. You ready? Some of you have already tuned me out, but I want you to hear what God's word says. So what do we begin? We begin with the scriptural truth about human life. Why do we begin here? Because the word of God is the basis of truth for the believer. And for every person who names Christ as Lord and Savior, the word of God should be the filter for your life. Every single thing from the culture should fall and filter through the word of God. Every single emotion that I feel should filter through the word of God. Every thought that I have should filter from the word, through the word of God. And if my emotions and thoughts and beliefs do not line up with the teaching of Scripture, it's not the Scripture that's wrong. It's me that I've got to allow the Holy Spirit of God to change my thinking through these things. So where do we begin as we talk about these issues? we got to talk about what God has to say about human life. Why is that so important? Because abortionists will tell you that this is not a human life. And for many years, the argument has been it's a blob of protoplasm. For many years, the argument has been that it is simply an organ. And for many years, it's just been called a fetus, but not a human. But here's the thing that we need to understand that God's word teaches us. The fetus is not a potential human, but rather a human with potential. And we see that all through the pages of scripture. Let me give you some pictures of what God's word says that in every single pregnancy, that life begins at conception, according to the word and the truth of God. And so here's what we're gonna look at, three things. Every human life is determined before conception. That's the first thing we need to see. Every human life is determined before conception. This is something that happens in eternity past by God himself. And we have several prophets and leaders of the church that speak of this. For example, Jeremiah says, before I, God is speaking to him, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Before you were even here. I knew you. Every single person in this room, without exception, God has known you from eternity past. There's nothing he doesn't know about you, where you are today. And before you were ever born, God knows everything about your personality, about your likes, your dislikes, everything about you. It is determined from eternity past. Secondly, Isaiah says, the Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. Again, at the moment of that conception, 
God already knew him from eternity past before he was ever conceived. And then Paul writes this, but when he who has set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace... Here's a wonderful picture that we see. We even see the plan of God's grace in Paul's life before he was ever born. And so God has determined their worth from eternity past. And so from eternity past, God has known every single human being and what they're like. But here's the second thing that we see about this. Every human life is developed at conception. God's word teaches us that at the moment of conception, that's when this person from eternity past becomes a reality in the present. And here's how we find it. David writes about this. He says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, David's talking about a sinful nature and that even when his mother conceived him at that point, David was a person because he speaks about himself and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we find in Psalm 139, for you created my inmost being, David says. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And the other, as he continues on, he says, all my days were known before I was one day old. There it goes back to this issue of conception. In Job chapter 31, verse 15, did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? In every single passage that you find in scripture, where God is speaking in terms of life from either before, from eternity past, or even in the present, they are persons, not potential people. And here's the third thing we need to see. Every human life depicts the image of God. Every person is not only determined from eternity past, every person is not only developed and through conception, every person displays the image of God. Every human being is created in the image of God. Your gallstone is not necessarily created in the image of God. Your kidneys are not created in the image of God. You are, and you are not just a blob of protoplasm. You are a person that God has created from eternity past that is brought into reality at conception, and from this point on, you display God's character and his goodness. You're created in his image. And so when you go through the pages of scripture, you will find every single time the point is of those three things. And every one of us is created by God on purpose. Now, as we look at this and we say, okay, there's a scriptural basis, we can say. But many people will say, you know what, I, I don't really believe and follow the scriptural basis because I'm not really dependent and really committed to the fact that maybe that is true. So, you have to go to the next one. They'll say, okay, I want, I, want to, I want to stand on science. Okay, it's one thing, yeah, yeah, you give me the scriptural stuff, but what does science have to say? So the second thing we need to do is look at is the scientific truth about human life. It's one thing for us to say, okay, here's what God's word is saying about human life. Here's where it began from eternity past, becomes a reality at conception, and it is from that point on we reflect and display the image of God. But what does science say? 
What does science say? Well, that's a good question. When you're dealing with scientific truth, we have to deal with two pieces that are very important. Number one, what do the experts say about human life? And what does the empirical data tell us about human life? Now, I want to say when the abortion debate began early on, there was limited amount of information that we had in those early days. But with technology and the advancement of technology, we know more now about human life than we've ever known. And through looking through the lens of science, you will see that both the experts and the empirical data speak the same as Scripture does. So let me give you some of the experts first. Here's an expert, Dr. Jerome Lejeune, father of modern genetics. Here's what he says. To accept the fact that after fertilization has taken place, a new human has come into being is no longer a matter of taste or opinion. It is plain experimental evidence. Secondly, Dr. Jaime, who is Dr. Jaime Gordon, chairman of Department of Genetics at the Mayo Clinic, by all the criteria of modern molecular biology, life is present from the moment of conception. Here's another expert, Dr. McCarthy Demere, medical doctor and law professor at the University of Tennessee. The exact moment of beginning of personhood and of the human body is at the moment of conception. Dr. Alfred um, Bonginovani, University of Penn, Pennsylvania School of Medicine, I am no more prepared to say that these early stages represent an incomplete human being than I would be to say that the child prior to dramatic effects of puberty is not a human being. For those of you who have children going through puberty, you wonder what their human state is. <laughs> Richard V. James, to say that the beginning of human life cannot be determined scientifically is utterly ridiculous. Now, these are the experts, and there are many, many more. And here's the thing that we're beginning to find more and more today. With the advance of science, there is no question anymore among the experts of when life begins. They're all holding to the same position that when you look at science and you look at the information, life without question begins at conception. Now, those are the experts. Let me give you some empirical data. And this empirical data has been collected over the years, and we know more now about the development of life in the womb than we have ever known. And with the advancement of the ultrasounds and the 3D, we see more than we've ever been able to see before. And when we look at the development, it comes in three trimesters, for those of you who know, and some of you are pregnant even now, and you're in various trimesters. What I want to do is I want to give you some incredible photos along with the description of the development of the human body. First trimester, two weeks after conception, the embryo has a developing brain and rudimentary heart. Three weeks, the baby has a working heart and the beginning of vertebrae and a closed circulatory system separate from its mother, developing ears and the beginning of lungs. At five weeks, the baby has developed smaller organs and by six weeks, it has fully developed a vertebral column ribs, a four-chambered heart, fingers and nostrils, its own nervous system and brain waves. At seven weeks, the baby has developed a pancreas, a bladder, kidneys, and a tongue, and a larynx. At eight weeks, it has ears, fingers, toes, all the other key body parts. At nine weeks, the baby can feel pain. 
At 10 weeks, the baby has developing fingernails and also begins to move by itself. By 11 weeks, the baby has fingerprints, and by 12 weeks, the baby's gender can easily be determined, even though we live in a culture where nobody knows what gender is anymore. <laughs> it's able to, be, to swallow, and its kidneys make urine. By the end of the first trimester, the baby has a beating heart, brain waves, moves on its own, and complete organs. It is clearly separate from its mother. That's the first trimester. The second trimester, 14 weeks, it has fully developed legs and can kick and sleep and move its head. By 20 weeks, babies can give response to small stimulations. By five months after this uh, the conception of the baby is able to think, to dream, and capable of learning. Six months, the baby can breathe air, and its eyes are open. By the, this time, it can hear, and there is no question that the baby is now its own person. It can learn, think, and live on its own without its mother. The third trimester, the baby gains as much as five pounds and outgrows its home. Now, here's what's interesting about all of this technology. If there is no longer any question of whether this is a child, a human being, then where do you go with the debate? Both science and scripture support the truth that life begins at conception. Both science and scripture support the reality that this is a human being. And it's not that scripture supports science, it is always that science supports scripture. And when we look at those two and you see the reality of this, is that this is a human being. So where does the debate go? They can no longer argue that this is a fetus because that's been put down, it's not just a fetus. They can no longer argue that this is just a blob of protoplasm. They can no longer argue that this is just another organ that can be extracted from your body without any consequences. Those arguments are gone, they're dead. And those people who still try to argue those are arguing those against science. So what does science say? That this is a human being. And now the debate comes, do I have the right to kill a child? That's where the debate comes now. And this is where the debate is headed. Two weeks ago, President Biden said, after the coming down of the opinion from the Supreme Court, he said, to protect the right to abort, and I quote, a child. A child. So this is where we are. And when you come down to this, and if scripture supports this, and science supports this, and we know empirically, and we know spiritually, that this is a human being created in the image of God, then the choice now comes, do I have the right to end a human life? Do you know that on the docket in California right now, this blew me away, I found this out this week, on the docket in California right now, there is a bill that they're trying to pass that the mother has the right to put her child to death 28 days after it's born. Why not six months? Why not, like most parents want to do, 16 years? <laughs> you see where the debate is going? 
And now you see the hostility of those who are protesting in our culture. It is no longer just about that. It's about the right to end a child's life. That's where it's gone. So we looked at what scripture says. We looked at what science says. But here's the one thing that nobody looks at. Let's look at the social impact of abortion on human life. Nobody wants to talk about this. Remember, because they've changed the words, it's no longer abortion, it's now health. It's health. It's health of the mother, it's health of the child. Well, there's nothing healthy for the child and there's nothing healthy for the mother. Here's what we've discovered through the social impact that abortion has on not only the children, but also on the moms. Here's the first thing we need to see. Abortions are cruel. Abortions are cruel. Why? Because when we look at the development of children in the womb, we see that they can feel, they can sense, they can hear. They experience pain. And abortionists have said in the past that, no, 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 this is just like extracting a tooth. The tooth has no pain. You have the pain. But we see this totally different from that. When we look at the methods of abortion, we find that there are three methods. Suction aspiration. 98% of abortions are done this way in the first trimester. Suction aspiration. I'm not going to get into graphic detail. It's just simply a powerful vacuum that literally pulls the child out and rips it into pieces. Saline amniocentesis. This actually began with Nazi Germany in the concentration camps. And that is the injection of powerful saline solutions where salt literally burns the child to death. And then partial birth abortion, you know that. The child goes through the birth canal, the head comes out, and they kill the child. By the way, partial birth abortion is only country in the world that does it is the United States because it's the most barbaric. So there's nothing safe for the child, is it? There's nothing healthy for the child. And every child that goes through abortion experiences pain that you and I can't even imagine. But here's the second thing we need to see. Most abortions are for unwanted consequences. Unwanted consequences. Now, what does that mean? That means that um, young women sometimes will get pregnant and then there's so many unwanted consequences. There's the unwanted consequence of having a child. There's the unwanted consequence of having to face my parents. There's the the, the shame. There's embarrassment. What is my future going to look like? Am I going to have to do... A lot of times we think people who have abortions are just terrible people and they don't have any consciences. That's not true. They're so confused and they're so lied to that they walk through these things in an emotional state and they cannot think clearly. But according to Planned Parenthood, their own statistics that they put together tell us why women have abortions. Here's what they came up with. 1% are victims of incest and rape. 1% have fetal abnormalities. 3% had a doctor's insistence. But 95% were from reasons of unwanted consequences. I can't handle it emotionally, financially, And all the other reasons, the number one reason is because of these consequences that will flow. Now, this is consistent with Planned Parenthood. And one of the things they never want their clients to know is to see an ultrasound. They never want them to see that. Here's what one doctor says. He says, the women are never allowed to look at the ultrasound because we knew that if they so much as heard the heartbeat, they wouldn't want to have an abortion. And a second reason that many people don't hear is encouragement. C. Everett Koop, who is, remember was a Surgeon General for years, 
He says, never once did a case come across my practice where abortion was necessary to save a mother's life. So the thing of incense and mother's life being saved is used all the time to justify abortions where those rarely, rarely ever occur. And so it's a smokescreen to provide abortions for unwanted consequences. How does that impact women? A survey was conducted of 1900, well, well, let me go to the next point. Abortionists stain the conscience. Abortions stain the conscience. Let me tell you, here's a lie. Women are told if they have an abortion, they can get out of this difficult situation and they can be free. But abortions tend to move people from freedom to slavery. Let me give you some illustrations of this. 1,900 women who had abortions were asked this question. Were there any negative psychological effects caused by your abortion? 94% said yes. 2% said no. Another survey was conducted by Dr. Ann Speckard of the University of Minnesota, and here's what she concluded. She said, after five to 10 years, 54% of mothers choosing abortion had nightmares. 81% had preoccupation with their aborted child. 35% had perceived visitations with their child. And 96% felt they had taken a human life. I met with a lady this past week who works at an abortion clinic. And she told me that these statistics are true. And overwhelmingly, women who have had abortions are dealing with issues of depression and anxiety and brokenness and the reality that they've ended a human life. And many of them, I've heard from women saying, every time I see a child, I wonder, that would be the age of the child that I aborted. I wonder what they would be like. And they become so consumed by that that the heaviness of their guilt and their shame weighs them down. So don't talk about health of the mother when this happens. One abortionist wrote these words. He says, I'm deeply troubled by my own increasing certainty that I have in fact presided over 60,000 deaths. There is no longer serious doubt in my mind that human life exists from the onset of pregnancy. Jane Roe, who is the name of Roe v. Wade, she says, I'm dedicated to spending the rest of my life undoing the law that bears my name. I would like nothing more than to have this law overturned either by an act of Congress or a reversal in the Supreme Court. Another stat I read was this. A survey was done on a massive scale of women in the United States who had abortions. Here's what they discovered. 39,000 women who have had abortions are active in the pro-choice movement today. 245,000 women who have had abortions are active in the pro-life movement today because they see the serious damage that it has done to children and to themselves. So when they talk about safe, legal, and rare, it's none of those things. And some here today, maybe you have, ladies, have had an abortion and you've been struggling with the pain of it. And you've been even self-medicating your pain because you feel the guilt and the heaviness and the brokenness of what has happened. And I want you to know the Lord Jesus is here today because he died for you. He died for that child. And he wants to set you free, and he can do that if you would come to him. Here's the last thing I want you to see. 
What does the believer stand for the sanctity of human life? Where should we stand in this? What should be our role? And here's what I want to say very clearly. As believers, it is not enough for us to just say, I'm pro-life. It's not enough. It's not enough for us to just say, yeah, I believe life begins at conception. It's not enough for us to say, I believe that the science supports what scripture says. It's not enough just to see the social ramifications that it has on our culture. And it certainly should never be a tool for condemning and pointing our fingers and self-righteousness because we could all be there. So what should our stand be when it comes to this? I think when it comes to the sanctity of human life, we as a church need to have a more holistic approach when it comes to this. Let me tell you what the number one argument against the church is right now. You may have seen it on some, some um, Twitter accounts. You may have seen it out in social media. You may have heard it said. I know I've heard it from some members of my extended family. Here's the argument, and here's how it goes. You people at church, yeah, you're all about the unborn and protecting them. But what about after they're born? You care about the sanctity of life, but what about the orphans who are poor? What about the homeless? What about those who are in poverty? What about those women who are mistreated and, and, and are beaten by their husbands? And the list goes on and on and on. And I will concede that that is a good point. That is a good point. Are we only concerned about them in the womb and once they're born, we care nothing else about them? So that sounds like a very good point, but let me tell you, it's a straw man argument and that argument is filled with hypocrisy. Let me tell you why. It's a straw man argument because the two are in different, totally different camps. The unborn has no ability to make a choice to improve the circumstances, none. And in that situation, the unborn is the only innocent person in that crisis. And so the unborn has no opportunity to better his or her circumstances. But those who are outside of the womb and who are making choices of sinful life, whether it leads them to really terrible consequences, they can make choices along the way to improve the circumstances. So those are two different camps. But here's why I say it's hypocrisy. Here's why I say it's hypocrisy. Because most of the time, the people who use that themselves don't care about the underprivileged of culture. I was speaking with one individual, and the question came up to me. Phil, what about this? And I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, I want to tell you what my wife and I do. We support, we support pro-life issues. And we want to rescue as many as we can. So here's what we do. We support Lifeline Pregnancy Centers, personally, out of our own money. But we don't stop there. We also support children's homes. Because those who have been orphaned and are poor need help. And so we're moving past that. We also support, personally, a homeless ministry in town. 
where we give money to help those homeless and those people who are in poverty. We also support other missionaries that are working with children around the world who are less fortunate. We even support batter women's organizations to help those women. And I looked at that young man. I said, let me ask you a question. Who do you support? Are you giving any money or time to help young women who are confused about their pregnancy? No. Are you supporting orphanages? No. Are you supporting children's homes? No. Are you feeding the homeless? No. And every single answer was no. So it's a hypocritical argument that dies on its face, but it is a challenge to us. Why? Here's what the word of God says. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. This is a holistic picture of the sanctity of human life. We cannot care just about the unborn. But we are called to rescue those who are the most innocent among us. But we are called also to minister to those who are around us who are stumbling towards the slaughter. And we have the truth and the words to life to help them. That's what we're called to do. And church, it's not enough for us just to stand on a corner and say, I don't believe what those that people are saying. It is enough for us to say, let's be the church. Let's transform the culture. Let's transform this community with the love of Jesus Christ in such a way that I am going to minister to as many people as I can in all sectors because every life is worth loving because Jesus did it. So, how do we do it? Let me give you three things in closing. How about getting involved prayerfully? Getting involved prayerfully. Let's pray for our leaders. Let's pray for our politicians. Let's pray for women who are struggling in confusion. Let's pray for those frontline ministries that are out there battling every single day. And pray that God would raise up an army of workers who would be soldiers of Jesus Christ. And when I say a soldier of Jesus Christ, I mean to put on his character and to walk in his love. That's what we're called to do. When's the last time you prayed for our Lifeline Pregnancy Centers? When's the last time you prayed for our leaders in our own community? When's the last time you prayed for young women? I spoke with someone this week and she said this to me. She said, the greatest thing that we can do as a body of Christ is not only pray, but you might encounter someone at work, at school, maybe in your community who's pregnant and is struggling and is confused. And she said this, she said, most women that come in here say, if one person would have spoken truth to me, it would have made a difference. You might be that one person to be able to speak the love of Christ and pray with humility. Oh my goodness, we are not to be the, 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 the condemning arm of righteousness. We are to be the compassionate love of Jesus to a culture that needs encouragement. Here's the second thing. Get involved personally. My wife and I give about 15% of our income away. I'm, I'm not saying that to brag about it. 
I'm saying that to say we are involved in so many different ministries because we can't be there at every single frontline event, but we can support those who are doing it. If you're not supporting Lifeline Pregnancy Centers, if you're not supporting homeless ministries, if you're not doing something like that, one of the things we can do to say, yeah, I believe in the sanctity of human life, but I'm going to go beyond the womb. Here's what I can do. Scotts Hill Baptist Church, we have strategic partners. Our strategic partners are Lifeline Pregnancy Center, Vigilant Hope, which is a homeless community, uh, ministry, the Baptist Children's Homes of North Carolina. We support multiple homes, and our student ministry is making an incredible impact in the lives of these, many of them, foster kids. Let me say what else you can do. You can adopt. Well, how about foster children? What a wonderful way of being able to do something personally. You can do something, and the body of Christ needs to rise up. What would happen if every church in our culture actively did this? Then we would see that abortions would be rare because we would be loving people in the name of Christ. So I want to challenge you, not just pray, but to do something personally. But lastly, get involved politically. Get involved politically. We live in a country where that is a responsibility. We're citizens of the kingdom of God, but we're citizens of the United States, and we have an opportunity to be involved politically. And I would say this, that it would be hard-pressed for me to understand how any believer who understands the truth of Scripture and of science could ever support a candidate that is willfully open to taking the life of children. I'm not saying that because I want an applause. I don't want that. Those things should guide how I vote. That's not the only issue, but it is a major issue in our culture. So as we move forward and we begin to see things become very hostile in the days ahead, pray. Get involved personally. Speak the truth. Get involved politically. That may mean for some of you to run for office. I've had people say to me, Phil, you should run for office. I said, in this day and time of all the sermons I've preached and all the positions I've held, no, I wouldn't dare do that. They'd listen to every sermon I've ever preached and say, see there, see there, see there. Nope, nope. Plus, I don't want to step down to run in politics when God's called me to one of the highest positions I can ever imagine being a part of. So body, this is my heart. Listen, listen. It's not condemning. It's where we are. This is not a, 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 a rally for a political party. This is an adjustment for us to hear the heart of God and to say, okay, where are the tensions in my own life? What am I struggling with? Am I willing to submit to the authority of God first? And then align myself with his word and his spirit and let him do his work in me for God's glory and for others' good. And let me tell you another reason I, I brought this. Most of us who are my age and older, a little bit younger, we grew up in a time where abortion wasn't the main issue of a culture war. But for every person who's been born after 1973, there's never been a time where they've not been involved in a culture that speaks about abortion in every political cycle that comes along. 
And we need to understand the truth. Our children need to know the truth. And we need to know the truth. One last thing this lady said to me. She said, Phil, one of the greatest things that need to happen in our culture are parents to teach their children the truth of the sanctity of human life. Because they're never going to hear it in our culture. They will not. So how do I wrap this up? Here's the picture. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Contrary to everything else, God so loved this world, he so loved you, that he gave his son to die so we wouldn't. He gave his son for those in the womb. He gave his son for those who were toddlers. He gave his son for those who were teenagers. He gave his son for those who live on the street. He gave his son for those who are abused. He gave his son for those who are misjudged. He gave his son for the world. And the hope of the world is still Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you. Father, I did not intend for this day to be so heavy. But Father, I know that there are times where you grip our hearts and you speak to us. And Father, may the tone of this message never be one that's condemning. But Father, one is truthful. And we're honest. Regardless of the political positions that we find ourselves in, politics is secondary to the gospel. Father, may the gospel of Jesus Christ be that which fuels our hearts, that sends passion to our souls. Father, that we would tell the world that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. Father, as we walk through this, challenge us to be loving yet firm. Grace with truth. As we seek to be the kind of church and believers that bless your heart. And Father, that you will use to transform the lives of many. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottshill.org slash next steps. Till next time.